Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. It's January 26th, 1946, and another remarkable event is about to be uncovered by Aria, Rebecca, and Ali, the Retrospectors. They wave their goodbyes happily enough, but when the camera wasn't looking, quite a few of them shed a tear. <laughs> so reported our man from Pathé News on this day in 1946, when a ship full of war brides and their babies set sail from Southampton to the New World, New York City. Yeah, and the ship in question, the SS Argentina, had been specifically commissioned to do this uh, nine-day trip. And on board were 456 wives of US GIs who had been stationed over in the UK and presumably fallen in love with women while they were over here, and 170 babies who had been born to some of those 456 wives who were also aboard the ship. Arian, you're forgetting one passenger, the one war groom. A British man who had been married to a US Women's Army Auxiliary Corps woman, which was very rare because there were war grooms, but they were mostly men who had stayed in the country they'd been stationed in. He was one of the extremely small handful of men who was travelling to be with his military bride in the US. Yeah, I saw a report where he said that the girls called him hubby and the babies called him daddy because there were so many babies, which led to this particular journey sometimes being nicknamed Diaper Run and sometimes the nursery ship because it really was a retrofit on this naval vessel to turn it into something appropriate for young children. Yeah. They were also only allowed to bring with them 200 pounds of luggage, which is about 90 kilograms, which is not an enormous amount of stuff if you're going to be relocating your entire life henceforth. Most of them had been through quite a lot already. One thing being getting married in the first place. The US military had discouraged romances abroad for operational reasons, I suppose. You don't want everyone running around on dates to you when they're supposed to be focusing on D-Day. But from June 1942, soldiers needed official permission to marry, and this process could last up to a year. It involved home visits and interviews with relatives to determine suitability. They'd check how much money you had, and it did generate some backlash, but it remained in place. In July 1942, an article in the Armed Forces magazine, Yank, had the headline, Don't promise her anything. Marriage outside the US is out. I love that the magazine was called Yank. Yank. (laughs) I know, and it's not a particularly chivalrous headline, is it? It's like basically saying sleep with them, but don't propose to them because it'll be really difficult. And it turned out (laughs) that it was. If you did manage to get married, the process for reuniting repatriated servicemen with their wives was pretty slow, partly due to visas and immigration quotas, and also just to a shortage of civilian shipping capacity. A lot of the ocean-going liners had been refitted as troop transports, and then they ended up being refitted again to transport these wives and children across the ocean. And so you can understand why, from the perspective of those logistics planners, the idea of bringing home these new sweethearts of your soldiers was a sort of secondary concern to actually getting your GIs back in the first place. Yeah, but you can also understand why it was the logical next step. Yeah, they had managed to repatriate 8 million men and women from every service branch scattered across the globe. So it's like, okay, we can do that, then can I have my wife, please? And Mm. the obstacle to it 
as so often in American politics comes down to uh, uh, I want to say racism <laughs> but I'm trying to find another word for it xenophobia <laughs> yeah immigration policy as uh, Rebecca alluded to earlier had in place a quota system the national origins formula which was established by the immigration act of 1924 and essentially it was designed to keep the white population stable and feeling unthreatened so that there were enshrined strict quotas set for specific countries. So although the sort of colour issue, I suppose, wasn't so relevant, obviously, for Britain, where most of these women would have been white anyway, the law existed because they didn't want loads of women coming over, basically, from Japan, India, etc. So they set this arbitrary thing of, well, in 1890, we surveyed 2% of the population. That was the racial profile then. That's what we should stick at. And so allowing for this shipful of war brides to come over from Britain meant overturning the National Origins Formula, which led to a thing called the War Brides Act in December 1945. Yes, and it was designed to expedite the admission to the United States of alien spouses and alien minor children of citizen members of the United States Armed Forces. And in total, 70,000 women from all over Europe arrived in the United States over the following years, and 300,000 from around the world uh, more broadly. And it really served to kind of start to change America's attitude to immigration at that time more broadly. Yeah, and I think the image we have in our heads is of a British woman going to the United States. But over 60,000 women went to Canada. Most of them were Scottish, where many Canadian troops are stationed, to the point that one in 30 modern-day Canadians can trace their heritage directly to a war bride. And there were smaller numbers who went to Australia, New Zealand, elsewhere. It was actually it was an amazing movement of people, especially for the time when it wasn't so common to, to immigrate, especially for women. Yeah, I mean, that slightly hysterical Pathé News report that I quoted at the top went on to finish by saying it was Britain's biggest exodus since the Pilgrim Fathers sailed 300 years ago which I don't know if it's actually true but you could imagine almost could be true it is a lot of people arriving and when they did dock in New York they were met by a band there were cameras rolling 200 news reporters and again I found some incredible archive footage of and of course now you can see all of the rushes you don't see the finished product you see this couple being forced to say three times from different angles, I only hope my mother-in-law will like me. You bet she will. Snog. (laughs) Repeatedly. (laughs) Repeatedly. Do it again. I only (laughs) hope my mother-in-law will like me. You bet she will. (laughs) You just think, God, what happened to this woman? She's been forced into this strange scripted union with her husband already. There was another brilliant Pathé clip I found where reporters were responding to a Daily Mail story that had reported that 200 British war brides had been deserted by their husbands and were living in the US in squalor. And they catch up with the head of the Daily Mail's US bureau. And his reporting does sound pretty dodgy, actually. He says that it was based on three actual cases, and then he just extrapolated statistics on US divorce rates to come up with this figure that 200 marriages must have fallen apart since they arrived. And you can see the reporter going i mean that's obviously nonsense but it does show that there was appetite for the dream to turn sour you know people liked mm. it as a good news story look at these women being reunited with their husbands but actually they also kind of liked it when you heard afterwards that oh life in the new world isn't just all no rations and lots of cookies 
life can be really difficult for these women. And they did face a lot of rejection on both sides of the Atlantic. One woman recalled her ship being booed as it passed a ship full of returning British soldiers on the way out of Southampton. And then there were women who, when they arrived in the United States, were met with a relatively frosty reception because their families were disappointed that their sons and brothers had chosen to marry a foreign woman. Although it has to be said, of course, that they had a much easier time adjusting and a much warmer reception than the 50,000 Filipino women and the about 50,000 mm. Japanese women who also arrived in the post-war years yeah what about the 14,175 germans there were german brides of american servicemen who entered the united states that could not have been an easy ride could it but at least they were actually allowed to enter the u.s it was a really different story Mm. in australia during the white australia years and in 1948 in response to pressure from the thousands of australian servicemen who were still waiting to be reunited with their japanese wives the immigration minister arthur cowell stated that it would be the grossest act of public indecency to permit any japanese of either sex to pollute australia and it would be another four years Mm. 1952 before japanese war brides were allowed to join their families in australia Ugh, shameful. So overpaid, oversexed and over here was the phrase that was attributed to British men upon sizing up their American counterparts. But 60,000 women were wed by American servicemen. What was the appeal? It is astonishing when you consider that they were only there for a maximum of three years and preparing for a massive, massive invasion for much of that time. They got around. There was apparently a joke going on about the British women buying new American bras, one yank and they're off. (laughs) (laughs) But do you think it was just that for most of them, as much as any liaison could be seen as casual back in 1940-whatever... People did think it would be a hookup, and then it did lead to romance. It's so hard to say, isn't it? I guess it's the same as why does anyone fall for anyone. But, you know, Americans were, at the time, they were better fed. So they were probably a bit Mm. taller and a bit more muscular than the average, you know, working class British man in uniform. Yeah, you do hear all their, their outfits fit better. It was an era when the average Brit wasn't going to be going to America on holiday. So they had this Hollywood idea of what the US would be like, which I suppose mm. probably would be quite disappointing if you turn up you know, and you find out you're living on a farm in the middle of Iowa and you <laughs> yeah. thought you were going to be living the high life in New York City or something. But there was certainly... And I think Americans still have a certain... You know, have you, have you ever been in a situation where, say, you're in a group of people and one of them brings along their American friend and a certain frisson does still go around the room when you hear an American <laughs> accent in a room full of Brits? I think as well that, you know, what they represented in terms of the world that wasn't the blitz and rationing and all of that, it must have been very appealing. Also, I suppose the absence of the Brits who were off fighting the Germans, right? So you know, yeah. the, the, the British men that were around were the ones who were in some way unable to fight or too old. So obviously, that you know, they're going to look better by comparison with them. Yeah. Um, and I suppose as well, the sort of saviour complex, you know, these guys have turned up to save you. Knight in shining armour stuff. Yeah. Guys, I think you're talking yourselves in love with GIs here. <laughs> Come on, give me one. <laughs> Tomorrow. The ancients were great, but it's okay for us to do our own thing too because we've created this fantastic society. Love the show? Support the show. Patreon.com slash retrospectors. Part of the ACAST Creator Network.